Well, we're going to be carrying on our series this morning in the book of Psalms. Uh, last week we were sort of out of series with John Stevens uh, coming to us with Psalm 90, but we're back in the 70s now, uh, in, in the Psalms, not <laughs> in, the, in the years. So let's, uh, let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father God, help us this morning, we pray. Uh, open our eyes and, Father, help us to uh, love your words and love you more through what we read. In Jesus' name, Amen. Do you ever get frustrated that God doesn't seem to be doing anything? Do you know what I mean? Hello God, are you there? Can't you see what's happening? You know, your people are distressed. Your name is being disparaged. The nations are being deceived. Why don't you do something? Why don't you step in and act? When we see items on the news, like wars or famines, when we read in Christian newspapers of Christians being persecuted and killed, when we see in our own lives injustices and unfairness, why don't you do something? Can't you see what's happening? Well, Asaph here in the psalm, or more likely one of the sons of Asaph, his descendants, puts into words so often what we keep in our heads in those sorts of situations. What are you doing, Lord? Can you not see what's happening? How long is this going to last for? Are you angry with us? Will you be angry forever? The context for this psalm is probably the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. You can read the story in 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36, how they came and broke down the pillars of the temple, how they chopped it to pieces and carried bits off, how they burnt what remained. How they took away the sacred vessels made by Solomon, or at Solomon's command. How they deported God's people across the Babylonian Empire. And Asaph is saying, can you not see what they've done? And so our first point, your sanctuary has been destroyed. Now I need to find the passage of that. Verses 1 to 9. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees. All its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet who knows how long. Seemingly, the son of Asaph wrote the psalm during the exile in Babylon, probably around the time of Daniel that we were hearing about before. This was after the temple had been destroyed, but before they got back from the exile to come back to the land. The people had been sent into exile because of their rebellion against God. They'd abandoned the Lord. They'd not kept his commandments. They'd turned aside to other gods. So God had cast them out into exile. He deported them out of their own country. 
And it's clear in the Bible that God was the one that had done this to them. God was the one behind it all. And Asaph knows this. Verse 1, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? But he also knows that the Babylonians are not innocent in what they did either. He knows that the Babylonians have it coming. He knows that God won't leave them unpunished for the destruction of his temple and the enslavement of his people. But the psalmist at this point in the exile doesn't know how long it's going to be. He doesn't know how long before God will bring justice and turn the tables on the Babylonians. There's no prophet, he says in verse 9, who knows how long it will be. Now, of course, we know there were prophets uh, during the exile. Jeremiah even prophesied the length of the exile, so it would be 70 years. But clearly the psalmist was in a place where the news had not reached. Even Daniel, who we heard about before, gets the news seemingly quite late on about when the exile will end. And you imagine in a situation like that, when things are going hard, it can feel like forever, can't it? When things are going tough. So the psalmist invites God to view the temple, or more to view the ruins of the temple, to direct his steps there. See what they've done to your temple, come and see your sanctuary, how they've burnt it to the ground, see how it's in ruins, see how they've set up their own signs, their own idolatrous idols in the place of the true worship of God. It's a bit like he's sort of doing an old world equivalent of an appeal video. You know, like you watch Comic Relief or Children in Need, where they send somebody to go and sort of actually show you the situation, and they walk around the place where there's a famine, or they walk around the place where there's been devastation. And they always put that musical in the background, don't they, to sort of make you really feel it. It's different, isn't it, when you actually see those things for yourself, when you see the devastation. That's why they take you there. They want you to feel it. And the psalmist wants God to come and see what's happened to his temple. To come and see what's happened to his people. Remember your congregation, he says in verse 2. The people that you bought, the people you redeemed to be your very own. The sheep of your pasture, verse 1. Remember Mount Zion, where the temple was to be found. Where God said that he would dwell with his people, but it's now a ruin. Now when he says to remember them, remembering in the Bible is more than just not forgetting, you know, not forgetting something. So we read in Genesis during the flood, in Genesis 8 verse 1, But God remembered Noah and the beasts and the livestock, and he made the wind to blow over the earth. It's not that God had forgotten about Noah. (laughs) There wasn't all that much going on uh, while the flood was happening. It's not that he thought, oh, where, where did I put him again? Oh. What it means there is that God brings something to mind to act. That's what it means to remember, to bring something to mind in order to act. And that's what Asaph is asking God to do. Remember your people. Remember your temple. It's not asking for nostalgia, sort of, you know, oh, do you remember the good times? It's asking for action. But from the psalmist's perspective, it seems like God has done nothing. So our second point, and yet you've done nothing. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. 
So it's always saying, how long are you going to let them get away with it, Lord? How long are you going to let them think that they've won? How long are you going to let these pagans laugh at you? That picture there with him having his, his right hand in his garment, it, it, it's like having your hand in your pockets. That's probably what we would have. He's like he's saying, God, you've, you've got your hands in your pockets. You're just sort of standing by, whistling on a corner. Get your hands out of your pockets and smite them, is really what he's saying. Don't you know what they're doing? Don't you know how they're profaning you? But of course God knows what they're doing. He knows all things, doesn't he? Including what he is doing as well. Actually, what he's doing here is delaying judgment. Delaying judgment. And that's quite normal for God, actually, when you read through the Bible. God often delays judgment. It's coming, but there's a gap. What is he doing? He's being patient. He's being patient with the Babylonians. He's giving them a fair chance to give up their wicked ways and turn to him. Just that through the Bible. In fact, we live in a similar delay, if you think about it. The Apostle Peter writes, speaking of this delayed judgment that we live in, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God will judge this world. Jesus said that God would judge this world. Jesus said he was coming back to judge. But we live in a sort of delayed time. We live in the gap in between where God is leaving this world and being patient. And sometimes that can be frustrating. We can share the same frustrations as Asaph. As we see injustice in the world. As we see nations rage against God and his people. As we see them mock and imprison believers. As we see them execute brothers and sisters. I think sometimes we can even find ourselves sort of wishing that God was a bit more like Thor or Baal. You know, sort of thunderbolts down from the sky. You know, just strike them down. Even the souls of believers in glory cry out in Revelation 6. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But God is not some pagan thunder God. He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children on the fathers and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's what God said his name was. That's how he defined himself. He will judge the guilty. He will bring justice. But he's slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And we're so glad, aren't we, when he acts like that towards us. When he's patient with us. But less so when he acts like that towards others. Especially if we're the injured party, the people that have been hurt. The prophet Jonah, for example, in the Bible, liked God's mercy on Israel, but was not so keen on God's mercy on the Assyrians, their enemies. And the psalmist feels the same way towards the Babylonians a few generations later. He feels frustrated about God's delayed judgment. 
especially as it seems to be leaving God's people wasting away in exile. But isn't God a rescuer of his people? Isn't God able to rescue his people? Yes. Yes, he is, and that's exactly where he goes next to our third point. But you are a powerful redeemer. Have a look at verses 12 to 17. Yet, God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea, uh, sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. The psalmist here reminds himself who God is. The awesome, almighty God the warrior from the Song of Moses who divided the sea to work salvation for his people, who rescued them out of Egypt. That's really what those verses are about as it talks in dividing the sea. Now loads of ink has been spilled about God's defeat here of Leviathan. Is Leviathan mythological? Is it a crocodile? Is it a dinosaur? Well, read Job 41 and decide for yourself. But here, Leviathan and sea monsters is shorthand for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That's what he's talking about as he divides the sea. It's their bodies in Exodus 14 that are washed upon the seashore as food for the desert animals. That's what he's talking about, defeat of Pharaoh and his armies, which is always that big event that's called back to to show God's power. He fed the Israelites in the wilderness and opened springs and brooks to give them water. That's what he goes on to next. Then he brought them into the promised land and he stopped the water of the river Jordan. He dried up the river so that they could walk through on dry land. He's reminding himself of the amazing power of God. God is not stopped by monstrous emperors or dictators. He's not stopped by rivers or seas or deserts. If he wants to rescue his people, he can. He's done it before. The psalmist moves then on to the sun and the moon and the seasons. It's unclear exactly what the connection is between the two sort of sections, but we find the same transition in reverse in a later psalm, in Psalm 136. But it seems to be taking us back further. When God promised Noah and saved, sorry, saved Noah and promised him that the seasons would not cease. And he set boundaries for the nations after that, which seems to fit with what's going on. Even further back, he made the sun and the moon, the day and the night. Victory over darkness is perhaps what's in mind here, if we keep that redemption theme going. What the psalmist is saying is this is not some small tribal deity. This is not some harmless old man in the sky. This is the one who made the sky. This is the one who split the seas. And here he's reminding himself of that. When we see bad things happening, it's tempting to forget that our God is not impotent and powerless. We forget that he is not unable to help us. He's not standing by and going, oh, I wish I could do something, but I can't. God has stepped in before, and he can again. He has rescued before, 
and he can again. Sometimes, like the psalmist, when things are hard, we need to remind ourselves of who God is and what God has done. It's not a fairy tale that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. He's not a figment of an overactive imagination or imaginary emotional crutch. He is creator. He is redeemer. He is sovereign. He is powerful. Powerful on a scale that we can't even begin to comprehend. He's not some sort of better version of Superman. You know, he is creator of man and woman and child and everything. But we can so easily lose sight of that, can't we, when things are tough? Especially when our hard times seem to drag on, like they seem to have been doing here for the psalmist in exile. Every day that passes, he's more tempted to think, God's not doing anything. God's not there. God's got his hands in his pockets. But it's not that God's been beaten, or that God's taking a back seat. Now, if God is doing this, there's a reason. But the psalmist is determined that God step in and act for his people. Not because God must do what we say, but because what God must do what he has said. He's going to call us back to the fact that actually God has promised to do some things. So our final point. So do as you have said. Have a look at verses 18 to 23. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamour of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. At the centre of this last little section, this last little verse of the psalm is verse 20. Have regard for your covenant. Have regard for your covenant. The covenant was God's promises to Israel, his wedding vows, so to speak. The psalmist is reminding God that they are his, that he had promised to be their God and have them as his people. There is dove, verse 19, a lovely picture. Can you abandon your dove to savage beasts, he's saying? Can you forget the poor and needy, the downtrodden? And the answer, of course, is no. God is the defender of the poor and needy. So Isaiah 41 verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I the Lord will answer them. I the God of Israel will not forsake them. I wonder if he has that passage in mind because listen to what follows. He says in the next verse, I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Those are just the things he's reminded himself that God can do, aren't they? So do it, says the psalmist. He's also a refuge for the downtrodden and oppressed. 
Psalm 9 verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, safe word for downtrodden. A stronghold in times of trouble. So be that refuge to your people, says the psalmist. He comes to God on terms that God has given. Out of concern for what God has declared he will do. John Stevens reminded us last week that prayer in the Psalms is not my will be done, but thy will be done. We're to pray in line with what God wants, what God has said he will do. So even in the midst of this psalm where he's pouring out his heart, he really is, isn't he? He's still thinking about what God wants and asking in line with that. But that's not to say that what God wants and what we want are in conflict, are fighting each other. I mean, look at what God wants in this psalm. The protection of the needy, the downtrodden not to be brought to shame. Are those good things? Isn't that what we want too? And if we don't want those things, we need to rethink what we want, surely. God's will is actually good. It's something that we should want. Paul calls it in Romans 12 verse 2, good, acceptable and perfect. His prayer is God-focused here, but that's a good thing. Even though he's praying for his people, it's based around God's will for his people. But God's will is good for his people. It's also based around God's name and reputation. You see that in verses 18 and 21 to 23. He's concerned that God's name be honoured. Not reviled, dissed, insulted. He calls on him to turn back to his people for his name's sake. Because allowing the Babylonians to go unhumbled is causing them to mock his name, his reputation, his public face, so to speak. God in the Bible is very concerned with his own name. When he told the people he would rescue them, he told them it would be for his name's sake. So in Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? That name in the Bible became associated with the temple that now lies in ruin. So speaking in part of Solomon, uh, David, uh, God says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish this throne forever. So God's name, his reputation, is linked with a temple that's now in ruins. His name was also linked with his people that now languish in exile. So speaking through Isaiah of the return from exile in Isaiah 42, he says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. When he's calling God to to come to the temple, when he's calling God to bring back his people, he's calling on God to act for his own name, his own reputation, his own renown in the world. And actually when God does it, that's exactly what he says he does. So Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. When the nations profane God's name, God acts. So the psalmist is calling on God to do what he said. He's reminding God that that's what's happening. And he asks him to act for his name's sake. 
Now, it might be tempting here to think that the, the psalmist is trying to trick God. So he's trying to say, well, this is what I really want, but I'm trying to put it in language that will make you think it's what you want. You know, sometimes like when you try and make someone think it's their idea that they do something for you. Cup of tea? Someone mentioned a cup of tea? That sort of thing. But it's not that. The psalmist cares about God's name, God's reputation in the world. The psalmist wants what God wants, and he prays for it. In Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You often see that on tea towels and mugs and things. But getting the desires of our heart is not a reward for delighting ourselves in the Lord. It's the outcome of making our the Lord our delight. If we delight in the Lord, then we'll begin to want what he wants. We defined fellowship in the Bible in the 1 John series a few weeks ago as dreaming the same dream and wanting the same thing. I called it the Belinda Carlisle principle uh, because it's from one of her songs. That works in our relationship with one another, having fellowship, dreaming the same dream, wanting the same thing. But it also works in our fellowship with God. We want the same thing. That's part of our fellowship. If we are in fellowship with God, we will want what he wants. We will want his name to be honoured among the nations. We will want the poor and the needy and downtrodden of his people to be cared for. God's will becomes our will. And we pray for it. That's what happens. So are we concerned when we see God's name profaned, mocked, insulted? Do we long to see God's name glorified in the UK and overseas? Do we pray for that? Are we concerned for the needs of his people? Or do we just have concern for our own needs? And if we do have concern for others' needs, do we act on that? Is prayer a way for us getting our own way or getting God's way? <coughs> do we throw a hissy fit when we don't get our own way and things like that? Or do we trust God's patience and wisdom? You know, Solomon's temple was not the only temple to be destroyed. The Lord Jesus spoke of his own body as a temple that would be torn down by the nations, the Gentiles. It seemed like God stood by with his hands in his pockets. If anything, it seems like he'd been cast off. Like he was the sheep or the lamb under the smoke of God's anger as the sky turned black and the earth quaked. But just as God had a purpose in the exile of his people, so God had a purpose in the cross. Jesus was taking God's smoking anger and wrath on sin for his people. He was defeating the true Leviathan, that ancient serpent, the devil. He was paying the price to redeem his people from slavery to sin. He was cut down and cut off so that we might not have to be. He was God acting when we thought that he was absent. God is never not acting. Because actually, he's done that once-for-all action in the cross. And when we feel frustrated like the psalmist in our own lives or at the world situation or about the people of God in the world, when we feel that God is standing idly by while the world falls apart, we can remember the cross. 
The cross where God stepped down and dealt with our greatest need. The cross where God did more than get his hands dirty, but died in the place of sinful man. And we can remember the resurrection where God vindicated his Christ, who had done no wrong, and points us forward to our own vindication. Not principally for our sake, but for his sake, for his own glory. Do you ever get frustrated that God doesn't seem to be doing anything? Or look to the cross. Look to the cross and remember that God has acted, and is acting, and praise him for his wonderful rescue in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we confess there are times we get frustrated. Father, we look at injustices in our world and in our lives, we look at hard situations. And it's tempting to think that you're not there or you're not doing anything. Father, in those tough times, help us to remember your patience. And Father, help us to remember the cross. Father, whenever we're tempted to think that you don't love us, that you're not acting for us, help us remember that one event that shows us without a shadow of a doubt that you are for us. And Father, let that sustain us through those difficult times, knowing that the end is coming, and that Father, you will be there with us at the end. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.